This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Thank you all for coming. I'm Lily Meyer. I'm an events manager at Politics and Prose, and I'm really glad to see you all here for one of my favorite books that I've read during this presidency. Um, Anyway, I want to tell you a thing about Lenny Zumas that really made a huge impression on me. One of the first things I noticed about her was her website, which has you know, the usual bio, books, et cetera, headings, and then one that just says gratitudes. And you click, all it is is pictures of women who have inspired her. And it's a list that starts with Kathy Acker, and it ends with Virginia Woolf, and it's just badass all the way through. <laughs> and I love that. And that makes so much sense for a person who wrote a whole book around the question, what is a woman for? Which is, I think, the central question of red clocks. It's a book set in America. You could call it dystopian. You could call it next month. I don't know. Um, but it's set in an America where women's lives are circumscribed by a pair of laws that A, prohibit abortion, and B, stigmatize single mothers, which, as Naomi Alderman wrote in the glowing New York Times review that probably a lot of you have read, are such a clear and well-constructed extrapolation of the current debate that I doubt that any reader will need to suspend disbelief for even a moment. And it's true. There's nothing in this book that does, that does not feel both politically accurate and emotionally accurate. There's also no sentence that doesn't jump off the page, and there is no moment, this is a warning for those of you who read at night, there's no moment when it's easy to put red clocks down. It's a pro-choice page turner. It's pretty perfect. I really loved it. I'm really happy that Lenny Zumas is here tonight, so please join me to welcome her to Oh my gosh, okay, I, I feel like that was almost too great of an introduction and <laughs> anything that follows is gonna, is gonna disappoint, but thank you, Lily. I'm so glad to be here and thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, I'm back in my hometown of Washington, D.C. and I have actually never been to this politics and prose, but the one on Connecticut Avenue I have loved for a long time. So um, I do apologize for the scratchiness of my voice. I'm getting over a cold, but um, in the back, can Karen Ferguson, can you hear me? There, yes, okay, then I think I'm okay. Um, so uh, what I'd like to do tonight is read a, a few sections from Red Clocks, and um, I'll give you guys a little bit of context about the book. Um, and then I'd like to open it up to a conversation among us all, um, if you have questions comments, um, whether about this book or about writing in general, I would, that's always my favorite part of a reading is to hear from the audience and um, to kind of be in conversation together. So I will leave a lot of time for that. And um, so please feel free to ask any and all questions or make comments. Um, So as Lily said, um, Red, Red Clocks envisions an America that's fairly similar to ours, but um, but where the so-called personhood amendment has successfully passed through the U.S. Congress and the Roe v. Wade decision has been overturned. Um, abortion and in vitro fertilization are illegal and a single-celled zygote has all the rights of a legal person to life, liberty, and property. And just a, a note about some of the research I did for this book. Um, Almost all of the laws that pertain in in red clocks have been proposed by actual legislators uh, 
who are who currently hold office. Um, a, a couple of things I made up, but mostly um, everything, including the personhood amendment, has been championed by uh, several legislators, including Mike Pence and Paul Ryan. And um, so, I don't know if I think of this book as a dystopia so much as perhaps a paratopia, a, a kind of space that is close by ours. It's it's near. It could be next month, um, rather than a world that is completely, you know, has, has gone so far away from our own. There are five main characters in Red Clocks and the, uh, the book kind of weaves among um, their five strands of story. Four of them live in present day Oregon, which is where I live um, now. And the fifth woman is a 19th century polar explorer. Uh, I labeled the five characters according to their roles or functions. So we have the biographer, the mender, the wife, the daughter, and the polar explorer. I did this for a couple of reasons, um, one of which was just to make the writing of it easier for me, <laughs> which is why writers do a lot of things, and then later they can claim, oh, this was like a thematic goal, you know. But um, however, I did want to call attention to the inadequacy of labels um, and identities, uh, because I and everyone in this room plays multiple roles in the world and has multiple functions, but sometimes we can be known as just one of those identities, whether we're being known by an immigration law or our neighbor or a magazine headline. Um, and I just wanted to evoke for the reader the, the sort of limitation of knowing someone only by, oh, you know, my, my most important role is mother or wife or daughter, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so tonight I'm gonna read a few sections that center on um, the polar explorer and her biographer, and the biographer is a 42-year-old history teacher who lives on the Oregon coast in present day, and, um, and she's obsessed with this woman, Ivor Minerva Dotter, who's a Faroese uh, polar hydrologist, and, um, uh, I'll s and I'll start by reading a little bit about the biographer. This is from early in the book. The biographer was just quietly teaching history when it happened. Woke up one morning to a president-elect she hadn't voted for. This man thought women who miscarried should be required to hold funerals for the fetal tissue and thought a lab technician who accidentally dropped an embryo during in vitro transfer was guilty of manslaughter. After his victory, there was glee on the lawns of her father's Orlando retirement village, marching in the streets of Portland, in Newville on the coast, brackish calm. Short of sex with some man she wouldn't otherwise want to have sex with. The only biological route left is Avutran and lube-glopped vaginal wands and Dr. Klaubfleisch's golden fingers. Intrauterine insemination. At her age, not much better than a turkey baster. The biographer was placed on the adoption wait list three years ago. In her parent profile, she earnestly and meticulously described her job, her apartment, her favorite books, her parents, her brother, drug addiction omitted, and the fierce beauty of the Oregon coast. She uploaded a photo that made her look friendly but responsible, 
fun-loving but stable, easygoing but middle-class. The coral pink cardigan she bought to wear in this photo, she later threw into the clothing donation bin outside the church. She was warned, yes, at the outset. Birth mothers tend to choose married straight couples, especially if the couple is white. But not all birth mothers choose this way. Anything could happen, she was told. The fact that the, that the biographer was willing to take an older child or a child who needed special care meant the odds were in her favor. She assumed it would take a while, but it would eventually happen. She thought a foster placement at least would come through, and if things went well, that could lead to adoption. Then the new president moved into the White House. The personhood amendment was passed. One of the ripples in its wake was Public Law 11672. In less than three months, this law, also known as Every Child Needs Two, takes effect. Its mission is to restore, quote, dignity, strength, and prosperity to American families. Unmarried persons will be legally prohibited from adopting children. Before the first insemination, the biographer forced herself to consult online dating sites. She browsed and bared her teeth. She browsed and felt chest-flatteningly depressed. One night, she really did try. Picked the least Christian site she could find and started typing. What are your three best qualities? One, independence. Two, punctuality. She couldn't think of a third. Best book you read recently? Ice Ghosts, the epic hunt for the lost Franklin ex expedition. What fascinates you? One, how cold stops water. Two, patterns ice makes on the fur of a dead sled dog. Three, the fact that Ivor Minerva Doctor lost two of her fingers to frostbite. But the biographer didn't feel like telling anyone those things. Delete, delete, delete. She could say at least she had tried. The next day, she called for an appointment at a reproductive medicine clinic in Salem. Her therapist thought she was moving fast. You only recently decided to do this, he said, and already you've chosen a sperm donor? Oh, therapist, if only you knew how quickly a sperm donor can be chosen. You turn on your computer, you click boxes for eye color, education, race, and height. A list appears, you read some profiles, you hit purchase. A woman on the Choosing Single Motherhood discussion board wrote, I spent more time deadheading my roses than picking a donor. But as the biographer explained to her therapist, she did not choose quickly. She poured, she strained. She sat for hours at her kitchen table staring at profiles. These men had written essays, named personal strengths, recalled moments of childhood jubilance and described favorite traits of grandparents. For $100 per ejaculation, they were happy to discuss their grandparents. Do you feel undeserving of a romantic partner? Asked the therapist. No, said the biographer. Are you pessimistic about finding a partner? No, said the biographer. 
Might that attitude, said the therapist, be a form of self-protection? You mean, am I deluding myself? That's another way to put it, he said. If I say yes, said the biographer, then I'm not deluded, and if I say no, it's further evidence of delusion. We need to end there, said the therapist. When the polar explorer turned six, she was shown the best way to hold a knife and how to make a slice across the lamb's throat. Just one, they don't feel it, do it hard, watch your brother. But when she had the knife and her mother was squatting beside her with the little wriggling thing, she didn't want to. She was ordered twice to cut it and twice she refused. Her mother put a hand over hers and drew the knife under the lamb's face. Its face fell off. The explorer fell with it, screaming, and her mother hoisted the animal above a wash tub to bleed. The explorer was beaten on her thighs with a leather strap used for hanging slit lambs in the drying shed. She ate no meat that Christmas or that spring, apart from the occasional secret bite her brother saved in his shoe. The biographer doesn't know for a fact that her brother saved pieces of fermented lamb in his shoe, but she writes it in her book because her own brother used to hide cookies in his napkin when their mother told the biographer she didn't need more dessert unless she wanted to get chubby. Archie would leave the cookies in his drawer for her to retrieve. Each time she opened the drawer and saw the grease-darkened napkin tucked among socks, a flame of happiness lit in her throat. She wrote the first sentences of Minerva Daughter, A Life, 10 years ago, when she was working at a cafe and helping, trying to help Archie get clean. When she wasn't driving him to AA meetings or outpatient appointments, she was dropping leafy greens into smoothies he didn't drink. She was checking her, his pupils for their size, his drawers for needles, her own wallet for missing cash. Sometimes he would ask to read the manuscript. He liked the part where the polar explorer watches men drive whales to their deaths in a shallow cove. As a hater of tradition, Archie would have applauded her solo pregnancy efforts, would have tried to get his friends to supply sperm for free. One dose of semen from Athena Cryobank costs $800. His pupils would be the barest tiny dots in the pale green, his mouth ajar, tongue slow. The biographer knew the signs, was becoming something of an expert, and yet, and still, her brother's denials undid her. She would say, I'm not being paranoid, you're pinned. And Archie would say, because it's sunny, my friend. Possibly it was not sunny at all, but the biographer wanted to believe him. Her Archie, her dear one, no matter how buried, was still in there. Her father said she was being duped. He was never much help aside from the time he put up five grand for bail. Shut up, she tells her monkey mind. Please shut up, you picker of nits, presser of bruises, counter of losses, fearer of failures, collector of grievances, future and past. The polar explorer wrote in her journal, among the different names for sea ice, the name I like best is pack. It reminds of dogs and wolves, things that hunt. 
to be chased by ice and torn apart. Sea ice begins as a cold crystal soup and forms a swaying crust 10 feet thick. Solid, the crust can block, trap, gouge, or destroy a ship. The explorer had been lifted off the earth to sit on the ocean with men whose lives were nothing like hers, yet whose waking dreams were identical. Awkward suits of caribou hide, their fingers numb, the flame-red gash of sunrise. If wrecked in this vessel, they wrecked together. Near the coast of Greenland, they saw the crimson cliffs, enormous shoulders of red-stained snow. God's blood, said the blacksmith. Algae, corrected the explorer. The biographer can't see the ocean from her apartment, but she can hear it. Most days between 5 and 6.30 a.m., she sits in the kitchen listening to the waves and working on her study of Ivor Minerva Dotter, a 19th century polar hydrologist whose trailblazing research on pack ice was published under a male acquaintance's name. There's no book on Minerva Dotter, only passing mentions in other books. The biographer has a mass of notes by now and outlines and paragraphs, a skein draft, more holes than words. On the kitchen wall, she's taped a photo of the shelf in the Salem bookstore where her book will live. The photo reminds her that she is going to finish it. Then, the ice was too heavy to proceed. The crew hammered at the pack to save the lead. Lead gone. Food and gear dragged onto a floe, tents pitched by the sledges. Cook filling mugs with pea soup and boiled bacon. Ice a solid floor around the ship. No amount of chopping and sawing and hacking cracked the white grip. The ship was beset. They cut a hole in the ice by the hull for quick water if a fire broke out. A narwhal came to breathe at the fire hole, soon joined by others, their helical tusks pricking the air. The sailors watched the hole and would shout, Unicorn, when a whale appeared. The explorer had hoped the shattering cold would stop her menstrual blood, but down it came, slippery, warm, and she stuffed her crotch with rolled strips of burlap. The burlap was coarse and a poor absorbent. She leaked into her stockings. The narwhal's blotchy hide has been likened to the skin of a drowned mariner. Its stomach has five rooms. It can hold its breath under the ice for outrageous lengths. And the male horn, of course, much could be said. On the seventh morning, they woke to ice flows rafting up around the ship. Huge blue-white shelves, thrust vertical by wind and tide, jumped roaring out of the water and smashed at the keel. To her hoard of knowledge, Ivor Minerva Dotter could now add the sound ice makes when it kills a ship. Booming gun cracks, then a smaller yelping, and from the vibration, the ship's bells began ghoulishly to ring. Within hours, said the captain, the ship would be gone. Huddled in tents on the ice, their diet was biscuits, lard, and tea twice a day. Every cup wore an unscrapable crust of old butter, cocoa, eggs, and matches.
the explorer wrote in her journal, what is the flavor of human meat? The men in Franklin's expedition lost in the Canadian Arctic turned to cannibalism, according to Inuit reports. I admit to being hungry and to fearing the attack of a seal, and my fingers hurt all the time. But I prefer immurement in these spectral wastes to a seat at any hearth. The blacksmith harpooned a polar bear. Cook made stew from its liver and heart. The explorer did not take a portion, though it was agony to smell the rich broth. After supper, the sailors grew sluggish and slept poorly. By morning, the skin around their mouths was peeling and the skin on their hands, bellies, and thighs sloughing away. They did not believe the explorer when she told them vitamin A occurs at toxic levels in polar bear livers. They said she had cursed the stew. Um, this is Laney again. Before I, <laughs> before I stop, I'd like to read just one more passage, um, which is about the polar explorer after her death. Uh, the, the image of her body um, disintegrating in the Arctic Ocean um, speaks to one of the things I was trying to do in Red Clocks in various ways, which was to illustrate interbeing and interdependence, um, the ways that each of us is connected to other people and other creatures, as well as to larger systems, um, political and social and ecological. Um, and, and so I'll end with uh, the polar explorer and uh, um, changing into new form. She is menstruating when she dies. Strips of burlap wadded into her crotch unfurl in the water, making a brief red cloud. A Greenland shark smells the blood from two miles off, turns in a slow, silent arc, and aims his sleek bulk in the blood's direction. Crumbs of her skin drift up into the brine channels. Reindeer fur and flannel threads catch on ice dendrites reaching down from the undershelf. After the apex predators have had their fill, the smaller ones feast. Hagfish, lobsters, limpets, clams, brittle stars. Then the amphipods, the bone-eating worms, the bacteria. A narwhal hunting for air holes drags its shadow across the explorer. Krill gnaw green blooms of algae off the ceiling of ice. The explorer comes over time, apart. Weeks after digesting her flesh, the Greenland shark is caught near the western coast of Iceland. The fishermen lop off his head and bury his body in gravel and sand, heap it with stones that press the shark's natural poisons, urea and trimethylamine oxide, out of its body. After two or three months, the fish, by now fermented, is sliced and hung to dry in a shed. The pieces grow a brown crust, a shocking smell. When citizens of Reykjavik eat the shark on December 25th, 1885, they are eating Ivor Minerva Doctor. She did not be leave behind money or property or a book or a child but her corpse kept, kept alive creatures who, 
in turn kept other creatures alive. Into other bodies she went, but also other brains. The people who read her article on the contours and tendencies of Arctic sea ice were changed by the explorer. Her biographer was changed. And if the biographer's book ever gets finished, if it ever finds any readers, Minerva Daughter will persist in them. Thank you. I'm sorry for my voice. I know how scratchy it is. Um, I would love to hear questions, observations, anything you feel like. Um, can we pass, is it wireless? Can we pass it around? Hi, Lenny. Hi. Hello? Can you hear that? Is that right? Okay. I'm Lizzie Porter, your mom's I know, Lizzie. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. I love your reading. I'm looking forward to reading the book when I go to Portland in a couple of weeks. The timing. (laughs) The timing. I mean, here we are. How many days after the Women's March? The timing is perfect. I am convinced it will be a bestseller as soon as the word gets out. Personhood. Thank you for writing it. Thank you, Lizzie. So our book club was lucky enough to read your book as an advance review. Um, And we read it right after a recent significant presidential election. And it felt as if you were writing it during the speech. And I know that wasn't your inspiration because it was a finished book. Tell, I'd love to hear more about your actual inspiration and thank you. Of course, and thank you for reading the book in your book club. I, l- lately, I've been so excited about book clubs. I feel like I, I want to be in a book club because I'm, I'm a college teacher and often I feel like, oh, that would be like a bus driver's holiday to do a book club, um, if that makes sense. But I, I really, I've been communicating with some peop- more and more people who do book clubs, and it's such a cool thing. So, um, yeah, I, I started writing Red Clocks in 2010, and um, I, um, I had a really personal interest in um, reproductive uh, technology and, and uh, advanced fertility treatments because I was experiencing infertility. And um, when I started researching IVF, which is in vitro fertilization, I came across this thing called the personhood amendment, uh, which, um, you know, the, the first vote on the, um, you know, floor of the house or, or anywhere in Congress um, that supported a, this kind of amendment with rights for, a, you know, a fertilized egg actually came during the Reagan administration. It's, it's been a thing for, for a while now, but, um, the, the, the particular movement that has been, um, whose flames have been fanned by people like Pence and Ryan and, and others, uh, started kind of gaining strength in the aughts and around two, 2008 is when a, um, on the Colorado ballot, there was a, a, you know, a kind of human, sanctity of human life amendment on that ballot. It didn't end up passing, but, um, and so I was, in my research about IVF, I, I was finding um, these people who, you know, on the internet um, or legislators saying, you know, 
if we get this personhood amendment passed, no embryo can consent to be moved anywhere. So that'll be gone and abortion will be gone and we will have a culture of life again, right? And um, in, I had a lot of, uh, as you can imagine, complicated feelings about that. And as well as um, some of the, you know, if I would read a New York Times article about IVF and see and read comments saying, well, if you can't do it the natural way, you should just shouldn't do it at all. You know, this, um, this, this is artificial. This kind of technology is, is wrong. Um, and so what I entered a, in, a, in a sort of very personal way, I started seeing as a much larger question um, about who gets to decide these things and what does it mean to restrict these things and, and to start imagining uh, fictional characters um, being at the mercy of, of these laws. And so the biographer was, was the first character I started with in Red Clocks. And in certain ways, not all, but in certain ways, her uh, biographical details most resemble mine um, versus, you know, the Mender character who's an herbalist who does wild crafting and foraging and lives off the grid in the forest. Um, my life doesn't re resemble hers very much, but although some of her thoughts are, are very close to me. Um, so does that start to answer your question? I, and again, I think with um, not just my book, but there's so many books, fiction and nonfiction, that are speaking to you know, very strongly to a lot of what we're dealing with in our politics today. And I, I think that's a reminder that nothing happens overnight. You know, nothing emerges um, in a week, even though sometimes it can feel that way. And um, I've been, I, I thought it was so cool, Lily, that you brought up the gratitudes page on my website because one of the reasons I did that page is um, mostly as a reminder to myself that my work, my writing, the art that I make stands on the shoulders of so many artists and writers. And I also added a few drummers in there because I, I used to play drums. And there's a really amazing drummer in the audience tonight named Amanda Huron. Who's, she's also one of my inspirations. But um, so the, the ways in which, you know, nothing's in a vacuum. It's like I owe a great deal to... Audre Lorde, Angela Davis, um, Bell Hooks, Virginia Woolf. Um, the, I, I just, once I started thinking about that debt, it was a joyful thing. You know, it was a, again, a feeling of interconnectedness. Um, and the names I put on that website, I mean, it's just a, it's a, just a handful, you know. Um, but um, I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, with the, the women's marches and um, how grateful I am to activists from decades and centuries past. Yeah. So. Hi, I actually have two questions. One, I, so I'm only on page like 100, so if it's gonna okay. come to me later, please forgive me, but um, so for the biographer's doctor, I noticed at least his personality seems to be very, like, very aloof or just like not connected to the difficulty that his patients seem to be, that they inevitably have to be going through it to have to come to him, right? And he's totally. just very, there's no compassion there. And so I was curious why you chose to write his personality in that approach. And also I'm having difficulty connecting with the polar explorer and just um, figuring out her purpose and sort of all the back and forth um, as you go between each character. And so I'm curious if you could explain a little bit more about what you're trying to draw out 
from the reader or the connections you're trying to make and having the polar explorer be between each chapter? Sure, that's a great question. I'll start with the second one and then talk about Dr. Kalbfleisch. Um, one of the ways I, I would invite you to experience the polar explorer sections, which are, um, they, they tend to, just for those of you who haven't looked at the book, like they tend to be um, much shorter than the other sections and less kind of narratively coherent. It might be, one might be a, a recipe for how to make boiled puffin or another one might just be um, a list of types of sea ice, right? Um, and one way to, to, to kind of experience that is, is in a textural way um, rather than um, an informational or character-driven way that the language and the tone and the, the kind of tactile quality of those sections is, um, offers a counterpoint to some of the more kind of linear and uh, information-rich and character-rich uh, segments that, that surround it. Um, almost like um, injecting breaths of very cold air <laughs> into um, a more sort of heated and involved stories of, of the other women, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I think thematically, um, one of the reasons it's, it was important for me to put her in there is to um, mark the kind of connection over time and over geography and over different sort of time periods in history that we all have to, you know, not just to a 19th century explorer from the Faroe Islands, but to, to many different moments in history. And the biographer is interested in recovering stories of women whose contributions to, in this case, science have been lost or covered over or not, you know, in, in her case, she had to publish her findings under a man's name because when she submitted them to the Royal Society of London, they didn't believe she had written them. And the polar explorer had to make a decision, either I let my ego control this, in which case I'll destroy the, the findings, or if I want the world to have this data about polar ice, I need to let a man publish it. And that was the decision that she made. And so I think the biographer is interested in, in kind of re recovering and giving voice to her story for that reason as well. Um, and I don't know if that, that will make your reading experience any different, but... Um, yeah, I, I think if, if you don't feel like a pressure on yourself or an expectation to connect the dots really directly, it, it might be more pleasurable, but maybe you can you send me an email, let me know, okay? Um, your other question about the doctor, um, almost all of the characters in Red Clocks are, are quite fictional, um, not based on any people except for this doctor. <laughs> this was a doctor who treated me. And um, there's a scene in the book where it's Halloween and the doctor dresses up as Slash from Guns N' Roses and has these sunglasses on and the biographer is, you know, on this, like, you know, gynecological exam table with her legs open waiting and the, the doctor's like, oops, forgot to take off my sunglasses. And then, you know, and that is just, totally happened and I didn't change anything except for his name um, and I actually had a friend who read it be like this seems like kind of he's like way too aloof and kind of 
like terrible and stereotypical. Like I think you should give him some more humanity. And um, because I had not experienced him <laughs> having much of that humanity, I chose not to. Oh, although I have to say, there's a point later in the book that I don't think it's after page 100 where he she does see a little glimmer from him of some compassion. Um, but in that case, that's actually a great example. I talk to my students about this all the time. When we write things that are exactly as they happened in real life, sometimes they don't sound very realistic. And um, you know, I'll, I'll often have a student say, like, but this is totally how it happened, so that's how I wrote it. And then we have to talk about, like, okay, well, um, just because it happened this way doesn't mean it's working like that on the page. And um, so, you know. The next time I write about a doctor experience, I might change it more. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing such a prescient, wonderful novel. Um, Thank you. So I'm struck by how the novel not only touches on a lot of um, feminist issues of the moment, but also ecological and eco-feminist issues of the moment. And you've spoken a little bit already about your legal research for the novel. Could you speak a bit more about your ecological research? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've long had a, an interest in um, Arctic regions and polar re regions more um, sort of rooted in the, you know, disasters, like the maritime disasters that occurred there. But along the way, I really started to pick up on how much the space of, you know, the polar north and a, a little le like less so Antarctica, but you, you could argue that too, um, has especially in the 19th century, but also in the 20th and 21st, been imagined as a space of, you know, wide open resources to be conquered. And, um, you know, you have these brave men going in and risking life and limb to uh, figure out trade routes and figure out, you know, places to drill and to take the gas and take the oil and other resources from this quote-unquote empty space. And yet this space is not empty, as we all know. I mean, there's animals who live there, there's people who live there and have lived there for a very long time. Um, there's a delicate sort of um, balance in, in you know, those biospheres. And uh, it just strikes me as um, a, a place where we, the, there still persists this kind of very greedy kind of colonialist um, way of imagining like, oh my God, let's open up this this pipeline. Let's open up these fields, and um, and obviously, so many activists and critics and writers are, are critiquing it. I'm not saying that no one's paying attention to it, but um, in in picturing this polar explorer character being a woman joining um, these kind of men who wanted fame and fortune and gold and like to get whatever you know data. Even the idea of like getting data as 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 like um like a plunder, you know? It's like, I'm just gonna go in there and get the data. Um, that was definitely in my mind as I was writing. And, you know, I, there's a lot about the, the particulars of Arctic ecology that I'm still ignorant about, but it's something I'm gonna continue to research and, and explore, I think. Um, is that a, an area of interest for you? Uh, oh, the Mender, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the, the Mender character, her her hope that she doesn't know if she'll ever reach, but is that she could just eat and survive from the forest alone, from the fields alone, um, without 
um, as she calls it, relying on person-made things. And um, she is really interested in uh, yeah, being self-sufficient, and she has her goats and her chickens, and she knows how to what, what plants are poisonous and which ones aren't. And one of the great joys of writing this book was uh, learning so much about uh, wild plants in Oregon and which one, you know, what is ghost pipe? Can you, you can boil it like asparagus and eat it with lemon and butter and it's really good except if you eat too much you'll die, you know, that just this like really cool stuff I was learning and I'm kind of more of an indoor person than the mender um, and, but that's one of the reasons I write, you know, because I want to imagine what it would be like to really refuse to participate in um, in the logic of late capitalism, you know, just say, you know, I'm going to live, I'm going to use some batteries and a few other things that I need to run this little cabin, but she uses very few resources, and um, it, it was really cool to write about, for just the experience of writing about her, for me to imagine that, yeah. Can you tell us about the title? Sure. Um, so the a red clock um, is the mender character's uh, one of her phrases for the uterus, um, and one of the reasons I chose it for the title wasn't just because I wanted the book to be called Uteruses, um, but it was more to um, kind of evoke the idea of time and pressure um, and season kind of. Um, seasonality and cycles, both both kind of good and bad, and the ways that they um, operate in women's lives. Um, and I was thinking too of, you know, the biological clock, um, and, you know, blood, of course, the idea of having to sacrifice something or lose something. Um, and it just, for me, was kind of, kind of a phrase that pointed me in a lot of different directions. And um, so that, originally this book was called Notes notes from a witch trial, um, because the mender is put on trial in this book. Um, but that felt a little too narrowing and too focused on that one, the fate of that one character. And so red clocks seemed like it could even be abstract, you know, and um, yeah, titles are hard. Uh, yeah. This will be a little controversial, but um, you know, I'm I've thought long and hard about this issue of abortion, and I'm a pro Roe v. Wade person, but I have a lot of relatives that are evangelicals, and I mean, I haven't had an abortion, obviously, but I imagine it must be a super hard question decision to make to have an abortion, and I think what the Roe decision is saying after the three months, the uterus, I mean the the baby becomes a baby after three months. And I think the Christians think the baby has the soul on day one when it's conceived. So I, I sort of wish we could sort of not demonize the evangelical community on this issue and, and recognize it's a hard issue. And I don't think they're waging war on women, but I don't know if your book is, has a character that reflects their views, and maybe you just don't want to have them heard, and, and maybe you're, I don't, do you think you're demonizing me? You seem like a very nice woman. I doubt if you are, but that would be my, what would my evangelical friends feel about this book, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Thanks for your question. Um, one of the great things about fiction 
is that it gives us a space to um, dwell in uncertainty and in complexity and, um, and not come down on any, um, you know, one absolute way to think about the world. And, um, and actually one of the very reasons that I chose to have five main characters in this book was so that I could um, in create an experience where, you know, each of this women, these women has a really different relationship to motherhood or to not being a mother. Um, these women do have different um, views on abortion and kind of more broadly, um, they're put into situations where they don't necessarily act perfectly or, um, or sometimes without any intentionality at all. They're really just, you know, like especially the 15-year-old character, the daughter who finds herself uh, impregnated by a classmate she barely knows. Um, she's really scared and she is just floundering around trying to figure out what to do. And it was really important to me in writing this to, to, to keep the, the book grounded and in the experiences of these individuals. It's not, this is not a policy debate novel. This is a novel about what, what would it be like to live in a world where the personhood amendment had passed? What would it feel like? What, what kinds of questions would arise um, what kinds of struggles would arise? You know, the daughter is the, she's adopted and both of her parents are, are very firmly anti-abortion. They're um, so grateful to have this daughter whom they adopted and that's one of the reasons they're against abortion. And what's the experience of having parents you love so much? I'm tearing up now, I'm thinking about how much I love my parents and and um, ways in which, what happens when your parents believe something different from you and, and you have to uh, fold that into all your fears and your anxiety and you're wondering like, am I get, gonna get to go to this math camp or am I gonna be pregnant? Um, that's how I'm, I'm gonna answer your question. Other questions? Um, looking at the cover art, I'm curious, did you consider any other depiction for this book? Um, as soon as I, so that cover was designed by this brilliant designer named Lauren Harms who, who works at Little Brown. And um, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, that's the cover. Um, I, Cause I was like, oh, it's a vagina, you know? and. Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, that was my reaction. Not everyone. Some people ask, like, is this like abstract art or what? You know. Um, but you know, so one of my favorite writers is Virginia Woolf, and she had an extremely talented artist for a sister named Vanessa Bell, and uh, Van Vanessa Bell um, did the covers for all of Virginia Woolf's books, and you know, when they were f first published, and this design reminded me of a Vanessa Bell cover in the the sort of almost like decorative borders and um, it felt like hand-drawn but also very um, very fine at, at the same time and 
And it also made me think about like Russian futurist art. Um, so it kind of had it all. Um, but yeah, what, what was your first reaction to the cover? abstract with diamonds. I mean, yeah. 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 Sorry, coming. Book club. A second question, forgive mm -hmm. me. So I loved your character so much. Was there one that, I, I can't imagine how hard it is to write a book. I don't mean to suggest any was easy, but were there harder or easier characters for you to get your arms around? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you liked them. Um, I'm glad that you loved them, yeah. Um, one character, and we haven't really talked much about her tonight, is um, that was more difficult for me was the wife. Um, so the wife is, um, She's a person who was going to law school and, and dropped out um, to have kids and, and get married to this guy d named DDA, um, who's named after like a preschool friend of my sister's and long ago in Washington, DC, little DDA. Um, but um, she was hard because I felt myself, it would be so easy to go into some very familiar kind of stereotypes and tropes with her. like. She's resentful because she has to wipe up the crumbs of, that everyone else leaves. Like the, um, I wanted her to be complicated, and I wanted her to be kind of numbed out and resentful, and not necessarily ennobled by the routines that she was faced with. Like, um, because you know, one way to go if you have a character who's in a living s an experience they don't like, you can it, it makes them really creative or energetic or innovative. And this was not that. This was she is becoming diminished by her routines. And so how do you write that character? How do you write a character who is diminished and who is pissed off about it, but in a kind of passive aggressive way? Um, you know, and she's the character who, um, if, if, if there's a reader, if you're a reader who talks about likable or unlikable characters, she could be one of the unlikable ones, um, which f with me, for me, that's fine. Like I don't go into books wanting to be the best friend of every character. Um, but it's funny, that's something my students talk about a great deal. Um, well, sh he's just so unlikable and or so unrelatable. And it's really hard to know what to do with that because sometimes that's a mask for, you know, you haven't developed this character enough or we don't know enough about him to distinguish him from anyone else or he's doing things that you don't approve of, but um, is that why you read a book to approve of, of, you know? I mean, every reader's different, so, but that, the wife character was hard for me and for that reason, yeah. Oh. Mary Kay? I'm coming. I want you to talk about language, because your language is so beautiful, and that passage of the reindeer fur and flannel thread as she's disintegrating. So I just, I just want to hear you talk about when you do luxuriate in it and when you step out of that. Thanks, Mary Kay. Um, uh, so one of the opportunities of, of, because I had these five different characters and each of their threads follows them in a close third narration, I got to use slightly different language for each of their sections. And for the Polar Explorer parts, I really did import a lot of words I'd found from 
research, you know, reading the journals of 19th century sailors who had been to the Arctic and the, you know, what their pants were made of and, you know, would there be reindeer fur on, on her clothing? Um, but also, you know, the language of that, eco, you know, those ecological systems, um, you know, ice dendrites, like that is not something I knew before I, st I started writing this book. Like, you know, the, that, that you would have this pack ice and have these kind of arms of ice reaching down from that shelf, you know? And um, so, as you know, since you are an acclaimed novelist yourself, that the research part can be extremely pleasurable for like, you know, all the words that we gather. And, um, and then, you know, for the daughter sections, I, I use more colloquial language and in her free and direct speech. Um, for the mender, I used a lot of language that I found in older books like botanical manuals and um, herbalist manuals and books on witchcraft, um, you know, even books on like how to find witches and, you know, um, and it was during the writing of Red Clocks that I came upon the, my fascination with animal trials, um, which happened a, lo a lot actually in, from the 15th to 18th centuries, roughly in Europe, um, especially in France and uh, Germany. And reading about those trials gave me some language for the mender and syntax, you know, so her syntax is probably the most um, kind of estranged or unfamiliar of any of the characters. Um, and I, an early version of the book actually had language from the transcripts of the Salem witch trials in her courtroom scenes. And um, my editor gently suggested to me that that might be more interesting to me than it was to, like, for the book. I mean, I, it didn't really fit for the book. It, it did feel kind of indulgent. So I took most of that out. But, um, but I just loved reading those transcripts and... I mean, and it's also kind of horrifying because it was definitely like a predetermined question most most often, yeah. So, but and also I just read the dictionary. the The one that my favorite dictionary is the Master Crossword Puzzle Dictionary, which is kind of a. It's also an encyclopedia of sorts. Um, it's. I think every writer should have one. Um, Herbert, someone is the author or the editor of it. Yeah, the master. Does anyone have that book or know know about it? It's so good. Um, yeah. Anyway, we have time for one more question, and it's all you. I just want to know what you're reading right now. Oh, cool. Um, Can I add on? I also <laughs> want to know what you were reading while you were writing this book. Um, I just started uh, this um, a book called Heartberries, which is a. Do, do you have it? Have you read it? Yeah. So, do you want to tell people about it? Okay. Okay, so it's, I mean, it's um, by um, a writer named Therese Marie Mylot. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, but uh, she grew up on um, the Seabird Indian Reservation in British Columbia, and this is a memoir, kind of lyrical and fragmented, about uh, growing up um, and uh, there and dealing with trauma and racism and uh, mental health issues, and um, it looks amazing, but I've, I've literally only read, like, the first few pages. It's very short, though. Do you guys have that? Or it's not out yet. It's not out. She is coming to PNP Connecticut Avenue, I think, in March. Okay. And then um, another book I just finished that I love, which is, I th oh, my gosh, I see it. It's right there. See that yellow book right there that we are never meeting in real life? 
That is one of my new favorite books. Has anyone read that? Did you like it? It's so funny. I was laughing. I was like reading in bed, like shaking from laughter. Um, it's by a, a, yeah, this really great writer named Samantha Irby, and it's um, kind of memoir, but also essays, and she writes a lot about the body and um, having like a chronic digestive disease and being a woman of size and also a woman of color in Chicago and um, about her relationships and it's just, I loved it so much. Um, Cause she, just her voice is, is really, is she reading here anytime soon? I think in April, but in the spring. Yeah. <laughs> I booked her. Cool. Yeah. What else are you reading right now? Maybe we have similar taste. If do you probably we've talked on spines vines on instagram <laughs> oh really oh cool i'm so happy to meet nice you nice to meet you yeah what am i reading right now i'm reading american marriage which i saw you guys terry jones already. Yeah. Uh -huh. yes next month i'm reading that um i'm reading um when they call you a terrorist i'm reading that and um the wife between us so i'm in between three books and yours i gotta start yours cool so, yeah. it's nice so good to, to meet, meet you, you. you yeah yeah, another, I, I had mentioned book clubs, but another kind of huge revelation for me in work, you know, the lead up to this book has been book bloggers and, um, and, and book vloggers, also people who do YouTube. Like there's this whole cool element of social media. Like it's, I think it's easy to, I'll use the word demonize that has already been used tonight, um, to demonize social media as, as kind of keeping us apart or, or being isolating. But I found that like Bookstagram um, and Book Twitter are so connective, and you know, hearing about books and seeing what other people are reading, and um, I don't know, I've like learned a lot from book bloggers. And how long have you been doing it for a long time? Yeah, that's cool. It's such a great use of the internet, you know. Um, so. Can I recommend one other book? It, it's also nonfiction. I realize I'm a fiction writer. I'm recommending all this nonfiction, but there's a great book that came out maybe a year and a half ago um, called Watchfires by a writer named Hilary Plum, and it's she's writing about a lot of different things, also illness, um, her own and her husband's, but the the Boston Marathon bombing and the ways that our country, th that America has sort of imagined its war on terror and, and sort of the rhetoric around that. And it's one of the most beautiful books I've read in a really long time and very moving, and but also very unsentimental because she's writing about a lot of harm coming to people, but she's able to write it in this very compassionate and um, tender and also very clear-eyed way. So I'd recommend that too. Thank you, you want to sign some books? Yeah, thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.